Hi, this is Joy Brandon. I'm here with Devin Dash, and this is episode 35 of the Axiom Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about strategic planning for nonprofits. So it's a topic that uh, came up in a meeting that I had yesterday and uh, had some really good discussion around it. So I thought Devin and I would talk about that today and just kind of explore the topic a little bit for people who are either involved on a nonprofit board, maybe you're an executive in a nonprofit, uh, maybe you're considering serving in a nonprofit or you're stuck in a nonprofit, you don't feel like there's a plan. Like how does all this stuff that we talk about in our day-to-day work with business clients really fit in a nonprofit world? Yeah, and I think too, what ways can business owners in for-profit businesses learn from maybe some of the, the nuanced differences for nonprofit planning? Uh, and what ways could a, could a for-profit business owner learn from strategic planning for nonprofits? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, so we'll get there and probably a lot of other places over the next hour or so. So where do you want to start? Well, let's just start right at the top is in what ways does strategic planning for a nonprofit not differ? Because I think, I think there's, there's a key foundation that every organization should lay before they really get into the strategic planning process. Mm-hmm. And I would be remiss if we didn't start there. Okay. So you're saying in what ways are they similar and that it's going to be the same for either organization? Right? Yeah. And so you know, to beat the dead horse that we beat every week, like what's your vision for the company? What are your values for the company? Um, why are you pursuing that? All that stuff holds true for the nonprofit just as much as it does for the for-profit. The, um, I think the biggest thing that we see that you and I would probably – um, disagree with in the for-profit world uh, is where those things come from. So, like, just to to go, get a bit down to to the basic level, a nonprofit is a nonprofit under a state statute, essentially. So, you decide you're going to form an organization and you you're going to incorporate. And what that essentially means is that you're creating a new legal entity that can sue and be sued. It can own assets. It can. Uh, it can engage in debt transactions and be obligated to banks or, or other lenders to, to repay money. Um, but essentially, it, it almost becomes like a new person. Uh, and it can do things in the world as a, a person would in terms of business transactions. That's a regular, that's any corporation. But when you set up a corporation, you have an, a choice to set up a for-profit corporation or a non-for-profit corporation. And the, the, the essential difference between the two is that in a non-profit corporation, nobody owns that corporation's stock. It has no stock. In a for-profit corporation, it's going to have, you know, the attorney can help you set it up with a million shares or 100 shares, but somebody owns that company at the end of the day. And if you own that company as an individual and you grow it and then you decide to sell it to somebody else, as the owner, you get the payday. You get the check. You know, you're the person who is you sell that company like you would sell a car or a house or anything else. But in a nonprofit corporation, there's nobody who owns it. So like if you just sell a nonprofit, well, who gets the money? Nobody gets there is no money. <laughs> so, uh, not to say that nonprofits can't merge and and transactions can happen, but the reason that we refer to them as nonprofits is because there's no owner standing behind the corporation who stands to profit from its success or to lose from its demise. Really, the people who succeed or who, who who realize success at the hands of a nonprofit are the people that the nonprofit is serving, and that's kind of the, that's the whole kind of altruistic setup of a nonprofit is we don't want there to be shareholders because we want the focus to be on the people, the constituents who are being served by the company. So. 
when we go in and work with a, a small business owner on their corporation and we say, who should set the vision? Well, the obvious answer is the person who owns the company should set the vision, yep. right? Uh, at the very least, the person who's leading the company can set the vision because as companies grow, like there are, there are multinational, huge corporations that have thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of shareholders. And so you go, well, who should set the vision? Well, the owners. Well, it's impossible for all those individual common stock shareholders to establish the vision. So we, we delegate that to a CEO. You know, the board will will be appointed by the shareholders and they will hire a CEO and they'll hire that CEO because they say, so you're a visionary CEO and we want you to grow this company. And so the CEO comes up with the vision. And that's probably more analogous to a nonprofit situation. So in our world, in our day-to-day world, we're usually working with the business owner. But the reason that we're asking that business owner to set the vision isn't necessarily because they own the stock. It's because they're the CEO. So when we go to a nonprofit, one of the things that we see that makes zero sense to you or me when we stand back and look at it is a nonprofit who would have like a board retreat and task the board with establishing the vision for the nonprofit. Yeah, and that th- you know you're never going to get there for one because you can't you, you can't establish vision by committee. It doesn't work that way. You're you're trying to to get people to aspire to something and look out, and different people are going to have different ideas about where they want to go. It's the same as like getting in a car and you can't go to the destination that everybody wants to go to. If there are four people in the car, you're going to one place, and at the end of the day, those four people have to sign up to all go to the same place. And one person's going to have to lobby the cause for why this is the destination we want to get to. So when we talk to nonprofits and we say uh, the, the most fundamental thing about strategic planning is understanding your values and your vision, like where do those come from? Well, the first thing we say is don't, don't put your board in a position where you're asking them to do those things. It really should come from the, the chief executive of the nonprofit. Yeah, and oftentimes you see that if somebody has a real passion, um, you know, we know a number of people who have been touched by cancer, mm-hmm. and they have a, a real heart to serve families and other individuals who have been impacted and affected by cancer and setting up a foundation or setting up a non, mm-hmm. non-profit organization, oftentimes that individual who's got that passion, that, that heart to, to meet a need somewhere in this area is the one saying, I want to start a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and, and this is why, and this is my vision, to help many people. And that's where the board comes in. Mm-hmm. Is I need people around me who are going to help me organize all of the moving parts. Yeah. And I think when we say don't get the board to set the vision, because that's you know, it's kind of folly, uh, a lot of people go, well, that's crazy. Of course the board's going to set the vision. But when you look at those situations, I think what you usually find is exactly what you described, is the founding board member is the one who had the vision. They formed the board. They are the chief executive. And, and in a lot of ways, that's kind of analogous to our very small business owner who doesn't have thousands of shareholders. They've got one. And they're wearing both of those hats. What mm-hmm. we would say is, yes, you're wearing the, the um, chair of the board hat, but you're also wearing the CEO hat. And it's the CEO hat that we would argue is going to establish the vision because there's going to come a day if, if the organization's very successful and it outlives you, you're not going to be the chair of the board, nor are you going to be the CEO. So who do you want setting the vision? You probably want the CEO to be the one setting the vision. And for very pragmatic terms, if you look at most nonprofit uh, scenarios, they're going to have term limits. 
right? And so you you might have a three year term limit or a two year term limit, or you might and you might limit you might have three year term limits and say you can serve two successive terms, and then you have to rotate off. Well, you and I would never go into a business situation and say, "Listen, you've only got four years left in the seat, <laughs> you know, calling the shots. Why don't you come up with the vision?" And then, you know, in, in another four years, we'll get the next guy to come up with the vision and the next guy to come up with the vision. But when you look at nonprofits, it is very common to see a CEO or an executive director who's been there 15 or 20 or 25 years. Um, and then, you know, if it's the founding person, maybe maybe they run it for the first five or 10 years. But very rarely are they going out looking for their successor as the organization gets larger and going, well, I'm really just looking for an executive director who can carry us for the next three or four years. They want somebody who's going to be there for 10 or 15 years. So if that's... If that's what you're looking for, and all around that person is, are going to be board members who are, you know, coming in for a couple of years here and a couple of years there, it's, it doesn't make any sense to ask that group to come up with the vision. One, because it's a committee and it's going to be very hard for them to come to consensus. But two, just longevity-wise, you want somebody who's got a little bit longer vested interest to be the one who's going to say, this is the vision we want to pursue and this is why and I'm excited about it and board members are going to come and go, but ultimately this is where we're headed. Yeah, that's well said, and and you know that that really summarizes the the ways in which nonprofits and for profit businesses and or, or organizations uh, are similar. Mm-hmm. But let's let's start getting into some of the differences. What are and, and how does the board then play a role in strategic planning? If they're not setting the vision, they're not talking. You know, they're they're on board with the mission mm-hmm. mission, but they're not setting the vision. What what is the role of the board in a nonprofit? Well, I think it can be a lot of different things. So somebody's always going to be be able to disagree with our position here. But um, when I look at a board of directors, what I perceive as one of the chief functions of the board of directors is to provide legitimacy to the organization. And so when you when you if you're in a nonprofit, you're the executive director of a nonprofit. What do you want on a board? Well, I want respectable members of the community. Like I want a I want a leading attorney. I want a good CPA. I want a banker who's very prominent. I want uh, somebody who's very active in the social community and can can rally our cause with this constituent group of people. I want somebody who's good at fundraising and maybe they own a really big business and they've got the they control the purse strings or they're influential in the purse strings over these other organizations. And what you're looking for is that legitimacy so that when you go ask people for money or when you try to recruit people to your cause or when you try to set up partnerships with other organizations, they look at the board that's involved with you and they take you seriously because you have serious players on your board. So part of it at its at its core is is to provide that legitimacy and that comes from the outside perception in terms of you know who's on your board and is there any name recognition kind of stuff there too. But the other side of it is they want to know that you're having to run the things that you do by a group of people who know what they're about, who have some common sense and some intellectual capacity and some discernment so that you're, if, if they do uh, give you a grant or if they do give you a large contribution, they know that there are people that you're going to have to be held accountable to. And there are people who are going to question some of your decisions. There are people who want to see your budgets, who are going to want to vet maybe some of your uh, key hires just to make sure that they're in line with the direction we want to go. And so a board provides a very valuable function to the outside world of saying, look, nobody owns this company, right? So no, the, the good part of that is nobody stands to gain 
if if we give them a, bu- a big piece of land, like they're not going to turn around and sell it, and somebody's going to walk away to the beach with seven figures and re- you know and, and, and just live it up. So that's good. Nobody stands to gain. It's going to be all about the constituents. But the bad part of it is nobody stands to lose either. It's not my money. So you know, you and I go in and work with a business owner, and if if somebody's considering whether to partner with this person or whether to do business with this company, they know that they're not going to play, you know, huge risks. They know that they're not going to go out on, on a limb that could get sawed off underneath them because they could lose their 20 million or their $30 million company. But in a nonprofit, it, you know, it's not your money to lose. It's somebody else's money to lose. So there's also a, a, a plenty of scenarios where that board serves in a capacity to assure the public that, look, we have our reputation to lose. Maybe we even have a fiduciary capacity and we could be held liable if we don't live up to that. And to the outside world, that's a very big thing too. Like, okay, so uh, this sounds like a great program. It, it might sound a little risky, but I know it's not. It's probably not that risky or these people wouldn't have signed on to it because they stand a lot to lose reputationally if it goes south. So I think the board, um, in terms of its overall general um, function, it's those things are always present. But then you get into the specifics of particular nonprofits and boards will play different roles. And it and to me this comes down to strategy. So I think there's an element where you look at uh, say an org chart, right? And you go, well the CEO of this nonprofit has to answer to the board. So the board must be at the very top of the org chart. You know, maybe we have the chairman of the board and then we got the executive committee and then we got the board members and they're all you know, the the CEO is reporting to all those people. And that doesn't work. Like, this, that's not, that's kind of a recipe for disaster because, you know, the, the, the CEO can't be accountable to that many people. And honestly, they're really not, uh, not uh, reporting in that kind of operational capacity to those folks because the board members are showing up for, what, maybe an hour, hour and a half a month. So, like, how involved can they be in the organizational structure? So what I would say is if you looked at the organizational chart, you have the CEO at the top, and just in terms of operational capacity. You have the CEO at the top, and then you have you know, their direct lieutenants and their right-hand people, and then you get into maybe a management layer, and then you get into the different functional departments and the people that run the programs that the organization's about. And then somewhere over to the side, you've got another little box. You know, It's got a bright red line around it, and that's your board. Right? And so if you think of them in the capacity of here's an incredibly valuable resource uh, that this nonprofit has access to, the question for any particular nonprofit is what role does this board play in our operational activities? And that's going to be different for, you know, it could be a lot of different things. I think they do fall into some common buckets. So for instance, one of the most common is when we look at maybe revenue centers for this nonprofit, the board is kind of their, they might be looked at almost analogous to the sales department, right? Because in a lot of nonprofits, it's that board's job and pretty much exclusively, uh, their exclusive role as a board member is to raise money. And you may join a board. I've I've been approached to join boards before and they say, just just so you understand, you're committing to either give or raise $50,000 for this board. You know, that's the expectation. That's the minimum stakes. You know, some people are raising 10 times, 20 times, 30 times that much. And so uh, that organization has selected a business model where the board is tasked with bringing a significant chunk of money. 
On the other end of the spectrum, you have some smaller organizations, maybe brand new startup nonprofits. And the reason they have an attorney on the board is because they need somebody to help. They needed somebody to help incorporate the the nonprofit. Like they didn't have the money. So like, hey, I got an attorney. Hey, will you serve on the board? And like, by the way, well, one of the first acts as a board member, will you draft this, you know, articles of incorporation for <laughs> us or look over this lease agreement for us? Or, um, you know, I was always approached as a CPA, you know, because they're looking for somebody to prepare their annual tax return for free. You know, and that's fine. I mean, so you have situations where you have a board that's, that's um, very much volunteering their services, not so much their money or their fundraising ability as the things that they're good at and they can do. So you get somebody who, you know, you recruit a restaurant owner as a board member and surprise, surprise, they cater your annual fundraising event for a rock bottom price, you know, basically just to cover their costs. And then in between, you've got all these other variations. You know, sometimes you'll have boards that are very involved in public policy, you know, and they're just supposed to get out there and get the name out, make sure people know about the board. Other times it's primarily a governance responsibility. If you've got a large organization, you want board members that know how to manage policy in large organizations, how to hold uh, hold executives accountable for big decisions. You know, so at different in different nonprofits, the role of the board is going to be different. And it's not a one-size-fits-all, but you have to look at it as, almost look at it as, what is our business model? You know, if we had, if you and I were working with a, a company that had 5,000 employees, like we would say, well, you really have to have a really good HR department. And there are nonprofits where you've got a board and you're like, you're kind of our HR department. Like you're really good at managing all the, the tick boxes that have to do with being in compliance with the government programs. And you've got the pedigree to for a, a government entity to look at us and go, yes, we're going to give them a $5 million grant because they've got these people on their board. And that's what you're there for. And that's maybe the only thing that you're there for. So a board executive, the CEO... Uh, that we're kind of talking to in, in this podcast is like, you have to answer the question, what role does the board play in your business model? Are you looking for volunteers who will roll up their sleeves and serve dinner at the annual fundraiser? Are you looking for people who will be able to go out and convince others to write large checks? Are you looking for people um, who are great administrators and they can help you run the organization and backstop the areas where you're weak? Are you looking for people who are really good at at uh, marketing and public relations and getting your name out so you can build a bigger, larger-than-life presence and look like a bigger organization than you really are. The biggest mistake you can make as a CEO is saying, I want to do all of those things. Mm. You know, I want a board that's going to volunteer. I want a board that's going to write big checks. I want a board that's going to sit through four-hour meetings. I want a board that's going to going to uh, staff and populate you know, four or five separate specialist committees that are going to meet you know, another four or five times a year. Like those people don't exist. The people who write big checks may not want to roll up their sleeves and serve dinner. The people who uh, are willing to sit through meetings may not be willing to go out and stand with you at a press conference. You know, that's, that's not what they signed up for. So you have to know, you have to know what's the role of my board? What am I going to ask them to do? And how do they kind of fit into my business model? Mm, that's really well said. I, I think that's going to help a lot of People, even if they're thinking about starting a nonprofit, uh, that planning and, and that insight is, I think, going to be really helpful for some folks. So, but let's transition and let's get into more of 
what's the board's role really in execution then? I mean, we've touched on a little bit. They might, their role in execution may very well be fundraising, maybe setting up the the corporate documents for the entity and helping, you know, uh, oversee lease agreements and reviewing legal documents or something else. But what about execution? Does does the board get involved in the day-to-day operations? And, and, and if so, in what capacity? Well, I think the degree of execution or, the, or what execution looks like will large part depend on what kind of role that board's playing. But before you get the execution and you back up and you say, um, you know, in the planning phase, and we talked a little bit about values, vision, you know, that kind of stuff has to come from the exec. When we get into strategy, that may be an area that you want the board involved in, depending on their role. But maybe not, because, you know, the thing that we know about strategy is it's worthless without execution. So how much execution is your board going to be able to be involved in if the extent of their commitment is an hour to a month, you know, 11 times a year during board meetings? So you have to be realistic of, like, what is my board's role in execution? I think ultimately execution is going to come down to the staff around the executive director because they're the ones that are going to have to be working on it 52 weeks out of the year. But the board does have a role. They have a role, I think, both in planning and execution. But what we would encourage CEOs to do is, you know, before you bring the board into a planning process, maybe define the scope, set the boundaries of the sandbox that you want the board to play in. And so if you want the board to to take a day away or a half day away or weekend away and do a retreat, like don't ask them to set the vision for the next 20 years. That's not their role. Also, don't ask them to build the operations plan for the next 52 weeks. They're not going to be around to, to keep oversight on it or to participate in it. So what are you going to ask the board to do when you take up their valuable time and, and energy to do some kind of planning process? And so this is where one of the situations where it probably makes a lot of sense to work backwards and say, well, if, if they are going to execute and I'm going to get maybe an hour and a half, a month of their time, and maybe we're going to ask them you know, for another couple of hours outside of meetings on committees or just doing you know, other nonprofit business during that time, Like, what's feasible for them to execute? Because we need to build a plan that's going to be feasible for their execution. And what that normally looks like is, is identifying the, the one or two areas or three areas, maybe probably one or two areas, where you really want the board's best thinking. You know, maybe, maybe the, um, the executive team does the planning first and they say, you know, this is, this is the vision that we have and you, you need to make sure that your board members are on, on board with that vision. Like if you recruited them saying, we're going to solve the issue of homelessness and then you pivot and change your vision to focus on child hunger, like there may be some board members who are like, well, that's not what we're about. You know, if you say, you know, well, we're going we're gonna to build houses uh, for people who don't have houses, and then you go, well, actually, you know, three years in, Habitat for Humanity is doing a much better job. Uh, we're going to go find cars for people who don't have transportation. And your board has, you know, three uh, construction business owners on it, and they're like, oh, we're here because you asked for our help. You know, so you have, to, you have to make sure that you're not switching directions too much if you're reestablishing or kind of setting vision for the first time if your board members have been brought in under different premises. But let's say that you can develop a vision and, and you believe, as I roll this out, they're going to get behind it. 
And we're going to narrow our focus in terms of our, our staff team and the leadership that's on payroll with the organization. We're going to limit their focus to maybe this particular strategy. And then you ask yourself, uh, given this strategy, what is the board's role or what should the board's role be in legging out this strategy? And that might be an open question that you take to the board for the retreat day and say, we, we genuinely need your help to figure out what this role should be. And we want your best thinking around this. Or the executive team might go ahead and decide what they want the role to be. You know, they may go, listen, if we let them pick, they're going to be all over the map. We're going to have five board members who want to do you know this thing and six are going to want to do this. So we're going to tell them this is what we want them to do. And we're going to ask them what do they think the best way to do that is. Or um, we're going to get even more specific and tell them the specific activities and ask them you know, where are we going to get the resources, resources to do that or how are we going to staff that. And that allows you to give them, one thing we know is that the tighter you make the sandbox, the more creative the thinking becomes, right? So if you use this analogy of like going to, you go to an open field where there's some kids playing and they're not spread out all over the field. Like they're not pushing the boundaries off in the woods. They're kind right. of in a tight little cluster right in the middle and they're, and that's where they feel safe. But if you stick them on a playground, that has got a chain link fence around it. Like they're crawling over the top, you know, and they're, they're pushing <laughs> because they're, they're safe in that space. And that's what you want to create for your board members is the confines of a very well-defined space that you want them to play in. And the more, the more uh, constrained you make it, the more creative their thinking is going to become. And then because you've already walked far enough down the road in terms of strategy development and maybe even some tactics with the people who are going to be doing it 52 times a year, the board's able to come up with some, some very actionable execution plans out of your time together. So it's still planning in the sense of we're deciding what we're going to be doing down the road. But once you've done that, it's very clear then what needs to be done and what the board has signed up to do. If you frame the question in terms of, you know, tell us what your role is. Don't tell us what our role is in making this stuff happen, which is what a lot of CEOs do. Like they bring the board in and they say, maybe they don't make the mistake of having the board set the vision, but they do make the mistake of saying, um, you know, what should our strategy be? And the board's going, well, this is what you're going to do. And, like you and I would look at that and go, well, that's kind of analogous to a business owner coming in and telling the team, uh, I'm going to go away for a six-month vacation. Here's what you guys are going to be doing while I'm gone. And expecting them to be all in and excited and enthusiastic and you know willing to follow through on that. And it's just not going to happen. So you know, don't, don't ask the board to give you direction when they're not going to be around to do it. And if you've done a good job of constraining the scope and you've, the outcome of that meeting is actionable, now you're in a place to execute. And so what does execution look like? Well, you said, so, you know, if we make up an example of saying, you know, our strategy, the, the primary strategy we want to focus on is public awareness of, of our mission because we're the best kept secret in town and that's not helping us raise funds. It's not helping us sign up volunteers. It's not helping us recruit people. People really need to know what we're about. And we're willing to work on this strategy for the next two to three years. Like we... We can continue to raise funds and we can continue to be viable, but we really need to focus on public awareness. And so you take this strategy to your board and you say, these are the things that the staff has committed to do for public awareness. And the things that we'd like the board members to do, we'd like the board members 
to become engaged in public speaking in the community about this board and its mission and its values. And so we recognize that not everybody um, has a gift in public speaking, but everybody here can, maybe you don't have the gift in public speaking, but you've got the connections to get a fellow board member in front of a group, right? So here's what we need you guys to do. In the three hours that we have left today, we need you to decide who is going to be, who's going to be on stage, how many times a year are they going to be on stage, what months is that going to happen in, where are the venues that they're going to speak, who's going to make those introductions, what's the time frame for that going to be. And then you turn them loose. Maybe you divide them up into small groups or maybe you do it, you know, there's lots of ways you can facilitate it, but that's kind of the mandate that you've given them. And so logically we'd go, well, we've, we finished that meeting. So what does execution look like? Well, you said Bob, Sue, and Mary were going to be the three people on stage. So Bob, Sue, and Mary, like when did you guys decide they were going to be on stage? Well, it's going to take three months to get things lined up. And then there's this, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this. And so, you know, 20 days later or 30 days later, whatever your next board meeting is, the CEO pulls out the execution plan and goes, hey, Bob, Sue, and Mary, like, where are we at on these things? Mm -hmm. And your board becomes very engaged, like they're all in on the specific mandate that you've given them. And you're still covering the consent agenda, you're still covering the review of the financials, you're still covering, you know, board development. Um, but you've actually tapped the board to, to be able to do something in terms of execution that's going to drive the organization forward that is consistent with the strategies, that's consistent with the vision. And that's something that we honestly don't see in many boards because the, CEO, well, the CEOs don't understand that it's their mandate to drive the vision so therefore, it's their mandate to drive the development of strategy, you know, bring in outside help if you need it, absolutely. But like you can't delegate that stuff to anybody else. So once you understand that, if you understand that that's your responsibility, then you start to use the board as a resource rather than submit to the board in this really broad, ambiguous way where they're expected to fulfill like this ownership role that really doesn't exist. Mm, that's that's really helpful. So we've in that we kind of touched on what exactly the CEO is responsible for, and maybe some of the leadership team of the staff, mm -hmm. and setting the strategies, and then going to the board and using them as a resource. I think that's so key. Hi, this is Devin Dash at Axiom Strategic, and we just want to take a moment to break in our episode, and first of all, just thank you for listening. And the second thing we want to inform you of is a special series that we're going to be doing where we want to answer your burning questions. If you're a business owner or you're a professional working for a business and you have a burning question um, that we can put our minds to and, and maybe help you, you know, think strategically about, do not hesitate to, to reach out to us. We're going to be putting together a string of episodes where we're going to be answering your questions. You can email us your questions at podcast at axiomstrategic.com. Or you can visit our website, axiomstrategic.com, visit our podcast page, and there will be a form that you can fill out and get us your questions that way. I want to thank you again for listening, and now back to the episode. What are, uh, what are some of the other ways that planning differs in, in say, uh, the role of the CEO? So he's the one setting the strategy, but in what way does the CEO role differ in a nonprofit and strategic planning than a for-profit? 
Well, I think the biggest thing is that in a for-profit business, the CEO holds a trump card that probably doesn't exist in the nonprofit world, right? And we just saw this this morning at one of our meetings where somebody's saying, well, we can't necessarily get that number. And the CEO turns around and goes, well, we're going to get that number. Mm-hmm. you know. And the message was, <laughs> well, we may not be able to get to it now, but we're going to figure out how we're going to get to it. It's not an option not to get to the number. And in a nonprofit, you don't hold that, t- that trump card. You know, you, your board is volunteering in almost every nonprofit. They're not paid positions. Um, you you literally have volunteers in a nonprofit. You know, yeah. who are not getting paid because they believe in your mission and they're coming alongside you. Uh, the people who are getting paid are probably not getting paid what they could earn in the private sector, you know, doing the, you know, marketing coordinator's position for a $50 million company as they're getting paid being the marketing coordinator for your $3 million nonprofit. So, um, you know, you you don't have the trump card and that's not to advocate like the heavy handedness, you know, that that's not a tactic that you or I would advocate in leadership. You know, servant leadership is, is what we're all about. But when push comes to shove in a for-profit business, we both know that that there is a place for the business owner saying, "Look, this is the way it's going to be," you know, and that, and it's, this is just the way we're going to do it, and it's a good it's a good way to do it. It's rational. It's not immoral. It's not unfair. It's not, and we're not taking advantage of anybody. We're just making a decision that we're going to do business this way, and and when. Um, and to an extent, all employees are volunteers, but in a for-profit business, they, they that has a lot more leverage than it does in a nonprofit. So I think when you're talking about the difference between the CEO and a for-profit and a nonprofit, you have to have somebody who has a, a very high degree of relational intelligence, but also is able to um, relate to these different constituencies it has a skill set that's a little bit more demanding than a for-profit CEO. I don't know many for-profit CEOs um, who can work with volunteers who aren't getting paid, um, recruit the best in class, you know, in their particular skill and discipline to work for 20% less, uh, convince board members who make 10 times what they make to give up a good chunk of their nights or weekends or, you know, lunch hours, um, and then go out in the community and ask the well-heeled for financial contribution. I mean, that that's a huge skill set. So, mm. you know, CEOs of nonprofits are special people. They don't grow on trees. Um, and they're usually hired for those capabilities, right? And so it's not what we're talking about in the area of strategic planning and the fact that we don't see it done all that well in a lot of nonprofits um, is not their fault. That's not their core competency. You know, the CEOs in for-profit corporations, um, they've either risen through the ranks to demonstrate an ability to do that kind of strategic planning and moving and execution um, while having to to deal with a kind of a, a less diverse constituency in that they don't have volunteers and donors and board members. So they've been able to focus their time and energy in a, in a more concentrated way on just what's the plan and what do I have to do to execute it? Yeah. And then you throw a nonprofit CEO in it who has got this incredible relational ability to move through all these different spheres and make things happen. And you go, um, listen, we need you to be a little more heavy handed, but in a diplomatic way, we need you to set the vision. We need you to go out on a limb and say, look, this is where I believe the organization needs to head. 
and I know you've been on the board for 15 years, but I'm, I'm intentionally moving the vision in a new direction because I think that's where the organization needs to go to. And I don't feel like a lot of them uh, are comfortable uh, in, in that kind of scenario. And it's in, in a for-profit business, like, well, I own it, so that's where we're going. Yeah, it seems the the common. It's a cliche for a reason, but it's it's so much harder to train and motivate and uh, keep volunteers than it is to keep somebody who's paid. I mm-hmm. mean, and it's a whole lot easier to lead it and, and hold people accountable when you're giving them their paycheck. Not in every case. There's a lot of people who might not sign up for that kind of accountability, no matter how much you pay them. Um, and they probably are going to start their own business one day, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a huge skill set for CEOs mm-hmm. in nonprofits to have that relatability and again going back to this idea of the board too to keep that fresh in our minds is using their them as a resource to help you and guide you through if you're a ceo of a nonprofit uh to to hold people accountable with Mm -hmm. not the heavy hand that you're paying their salary but uh to guide them and and keep them on task yeah and, and if you're you're in a nonprofit, um you know i i see a lot of mental time and energy and resources expended by that CEO just trying to manage the board because going back to that thing of figuring out what is the board's role here, like if you don't know what the board's role is, then you're constantly worried about whether you're living up to the expectations of specific board members. Am I doing this right? You know, I want to recruit a new board member, but they're coming off this much bigger board, and are they going to want to join our little small organization? Well, if you've decided that the role of your board, you know, to to accomplish the vision that you want to accomplish is to do uh public relations, you know, like kind of go back to the thing we were talking about earlier, like you need somebody who's comfortable being out front, right? And you identify somebody who sits on another board that is, that is not that been defined as that board's role, but you've seen this person either in a, you know, a big project or a crisis or something, and you, you've identified this board member on another board who's like, man, they're really good out front. But you know they work for you know they're they're volunteering for a fifty million dollar organization and we're a, we're a three million dollar board or we're a five hundred thousand dollar board, right? And if you have done the work to say that's the role we need, and you go to that board member and you say, listen, I want to tell you about my vision. I want to tell you about why I'm motivated to pursue that. I want to tell you what I perceive to be the role of our board and and getting us to where we want to go. And I got to tell you, we're small fries compared to what you're used to, but you are exactly what we're looking for in four or five more board members. Would you consider joining our little board and being the point person, not to do all of it, but to go out and recruit three or four more people like you? Or if I, if I bring them to the table, will you kind of mentor and, and show the way and provide the example of being out front because it's pivotal to where we're going in the future? And you make that argument to somebody and they don't sneeze at you because you're a tenth of the size of, of what they're used to working with. What you're doing is appealing to their ability to be useful and instrumental in your success, which is something we all desire. to. We, at some point, we all want to contribute to other success, uh, but we also want to be fulfilled in the process. So if you're telling me, look, you're really, really good at this and we really, really need what you're really, really good at, 
Like, I don't care what your budget is. I'm all in. Mm. And I got three other people who will be all in too. And by the way, like this guy sits on a billion dollar board and you know, <laughs> he'll be more than happy to come do this. So I think um, board members who have, or board or CEOs rather, who haven't uh, really sat down and thought about what is the role of my board? Man, you got to be wasting an awful lot of time and energy and anxiety just wondering whether you're living up to their expectations. And what should be happening is you should be, I mean, the table should be somewhat turned a little bit where your board should be, your board should understand what your expectations are of them. And their question to you on a periodic basis should be, am I living up to your expectations of me? If they're not asking that of you, it kind of demonstrates a fundamental lack of leadership and vision in the organization because everybody's wondering, like, am I li- you're wondering as the CEO, am I living up to my board's expectations of me? Your board doesn't even know that they're supposed to be holding you accountable to that. They're wondering the same thing. Am I living up to her expectations of me? And everybody's kind of fumbling through the monthly board meeting, not really accomplishing anything. And five years later, the organization hasn't gone much of any place because we haven't been executing and we haven't been leveraging one of the biggest resources we have, which is a really talented pool of a dozen or so board members who are well-known in the community and have great skill sets. Mm. Yeah, I think that word is so key, leverage. You know, the role of a CEO in a nonprofit, would you agree or disagree, is really one of leverage, not in a manipulative way mm-hmm. or, or, or like you said earlier, a heavy-handed way, but being able to leverage the right relationships, the right people to carry the nonprofit towards whatever vision it is that they're they're going. Yeah, and that's one of those areas where it's really no different from the for-profit CEO. You know, we we look at for-profit businesses and we go, well, in a service-oriented business, a CEO or a business owner can take the business to about a million bucks because that's the extent of the relationships that they can manage in a service-oriented business. It's the about you know it, it kind of has to do with the number of people that they can personally supervise and have report to, and to get past that point you have to leverage the efforts of other people. So eventually you have to recruit somebody and leverage their ability to sell alongside you. And the two of you together can sell 150% of what you were able to sell by yourself. Mm. And then you leverage the talents of somebody else to come in and manage the crews doing the work. And you say, well, now I don't have to manage, maybe I don't have to manage the crews at all. And I got two people who can manage twice as many crews as I could manage by myself. So that idea of leverage is very common in the for-profit world, I think in the nonprofit world, it's it's equally common. The perception of I need a good CEO to leverage a larger and larger organization. I think that is probably pretty widely accepted. But the idea of the CEO's responsibility to leverage the power of their board, I don't think is as widely accepted because I think there's some hesitancy for CEOs to view the board as a resource. And uh, whether it's because they think it's demeaning or that, you know, that it's always been pitched as, well, I report to the board and then I serve the organization. It was really not the case. Like you recruited the board to give, going back to the beginning, you recruited the board to give your organization some legit, legitimacy. Beyond that, you, you have a responsibility if you're going to take up these people's time to use it effectively to get you where you want to go in terms of your vision. If you don't have a vision, you probably shouldn't be the CEO of the organization anymore. It's probably time for you to go somewhere else. You know, It's very hard for you to work underneath somebody once you've been the CEO, so it's probably time to move on. Um, but if you have a vision, and you should be le- leveraging every single resource you can lay your hands on, your volunteers, your board, your 
the the team members that work alongside you, the donors that contribute to you. But yeah, the leverage concept is very similar to what we would see in a business. The board, though, is that wild card that for-profit companies don't have to worry about. Yeah. So switching gears for a little bit, on every board, there's bound to be an individual who, uh, I mean, in really any organization, right? We use the analogy um, of seats on a bus, and, and this came from the author... Oh, this is Jim Collins. Jim Collins. Yes, uh, like Built to Last, Good to Great, or one of those books, yeah. And he uses the analogy of seats on the bus. And it, it may not be much different in a nonprofit or a for-profit organization that you have a limited number of board seats uh, so as not to make it a huge board where no no real execution happens. Um and there's always going to be people who, who may fit on a, in a seat at one point in time, but they may become, uh, let's say, counter to the, the, the completion of the nonprofit's vision. Right? They actually become a disorganizing yeah. kind of variable. So in a, in a, you know, for-profits don't have to worry about this because they're not dealing with the board. But in planning and in, in really strategic planning for nonprofits, how does a CEO hold, hold the board accountable? I mean, they're volunteers. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like? Well, you, you go back to the planning paradigm we talked about earlier and like what have you asked the board, to what extent have you asked the board to be involved in planning? And that should be limited to the extent they're going to be involved in execution. So if they come up with the plan and it naturally follows that there's some execution they're responsible for on the plan, I think you're perfectly within your rights to hold them accountable. Uh, the good news is that if you do have you know a bad actor or two on the board, unless they're openly rebellious and trying to lead a coup against the CEO, um, th- their activity or inactivity or disengagement really is probably not that critical to the board's overall success because, again, let's, let's just think in terms of the reality of what they've signed up for, you know, is it possible that somebody not showing up for the board meeting, you know, for an hour a month or not contributing an extra hour to a month to a committee, is it possible that they're going to have a hugely detrimental effect on the organization? Probably not. Right. So we're not asking a ton from everybody on the board. We probably, I mean, there's always going to be cases where you're disproportionately leaning on some board members more than others. You know, every board's going to have like an executive committee that has been involved for longer and signs up for officer responsibilities. And you're going to have some people who um, have always carried the organization's water. They've been on the board for 20 or 30 years and, and they're very influential and they're very committed and they're very much involved. Um, and so, you know, but they're also very willing to be held accountable. You know, so I think the more engaged people are, probably the less accountability is required because, you know, they're, they're, they're happy to, to have expectations of what you want from them and be instrumental in driving the organization's success. And I think at the other end of the spectrum, any little hint of accountability Right, it's probably going to result in people just not showing up for your board meetings. Right, so there's very easy ways around that. You know, mechanistically requiring a certain number of you know a certain amount of attendance at board meetings. And I've been on boards before where people just weren't showing up, and I had to go sit down, you know, with the executive director or with another board member and just say, hey, you know, you signed an agreement that said you'd be there more than half the time, and you're barely making it to ten percent of the meetings. We see you once a year. You know, I think it's time for you to resign from the board, and if you want, we'll throw you a party. But 
you know, we really need somebody else to come in and take your seat. And very few boards are, are you know, some are, some are, but a lot, a lot of the ones that I've been involved with have caps on the number of board members. So you can always, you know, add to, it's not like that seat is going to somebody else. In a, in a for-profit business, that seat's very real because it involves a paycheck and there's a, there's a limit to how many paychecks we can afford. So yeah, we do have to invite people off the bus more frequently in a for-profit business if they're not living up to our expectations. Because of the nature of, of their volunteer role and the fact that it doesn't cost us a lot other than dilution you know, of mission and effort to try to manage people that don't want to be part of what we're doing, um, you know, we, we have a little bit more leeway in terms of that. But uh, I love to see CEOs of nonprofits holding board members accountable. I think that's critical. Well, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect awesome performance from your team without holding them accountable. So why do you expect awesome performance from your board if you're not holding them accountable? Because even your board is sitting back at some point going, um, oh, this is a lot different from every other board experience I've, I've had you know, or they forget, you know, or they just don't take it very seriously. And then at the next meeting, if, if they're put on the spot and said, hey, did you follow through on this thing that you said you're going to do? And it's in front of God and everybody, it tends to get their attention, mm. right? And they don't, they don't like that uncomfortable position of being in a spot where they said they were going to do one thing and they didn't. And so, you know, they t- it tends to, you can t- tend to build a culture um, of accountability among a group like that very quickly, um, in a way that you don't have to fight upstream in a small business environment where people are like, well, I'm doing the work that you're asking me to do. Like, do I really have to do this other stuff around strategic planning? Like, I'm doing, I'm hitting my sales number. You know, I really have to do this other thing too. And in a, in a board of volunteers, there's a sense where they all understood. They signed up if it was on your terms and they're not complying with those terms. Maybe they just need to self-select out. But I think you brought up another point that we haven't talked about yet, and that is uh, I thought you were going to go a different direction, which is like how do you, given the seats on the bus, how do you decide who you're going to put on the bus? And I think this is a huge issue. Pretty much every nonprofit I've ever been involved with, board development is mentioned as a high priority, but it's not necessarily acted on as a high priority. You know, so when we talk about board development, it's like, well, who's going to be the next board member? Mm. Right? And this is another one of those areas where I would ask you, is like, well, how, how effective can you be at board development if you don't have a vision for where the organization's going, you don't have any strategies for how to get there, and you haven't defined the role where you want this incredibly valuable resource of your board of directors you know, to play in your strategic plan? So how do you even know? who you should go after, right? So we default back to those more fundamental roles of credibility. So it's like, you got, so here's, I've been in meetings in board development committee meetings that went something like this. So who do we want on the board? Well, we don't have any attorneys. You know, we need a really good attorney. Who's the, who's the, who's who's got name recognition as an attorney? And we all rack our brains. And we can't think of a single attorney that's got name recognition, which by definition we should be able to think of because <laughs> right. they have name recognition. But something about being put on the spot with this just incredibly broad question 
you know, where somebody says, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, well, unless you grew, I mean, you were able to answer that question at five, but you're not able to answer that question at 21 when it really, you know, starting to matter a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's too broad. And we get in these meetings and we say, you know, who do we want on our board? It's too broad of a question. Yeah, I mean, if we have some specific holes, like, well, we don't have a banker, we don't have a CPA. And you kind of go through all the usual suspects, but once you fill those pockets, what's next? So let's say you sit down and you go, um, we're going to do, we as a staff are really going to do our homework before we ever tackle this board development question. And we're going to develop, uh, it could be that we're going to need resources to raise money. So who are some of the biggest fundraisers in the area? Who are the people who are the most well-connected? And your staff goes out and they look at who raised the most money for United Way last year, for Boys and Girls Club last year, for you know this foundation, that foundation, for the local university, whose names are on the buildings. And they, they actually do their – and this is work. Like this is just, It's not one internet query. It's like let's sit in a room, let's brainstorm the 50 internet queries we have to do to put together this list of 20 or 30 people in our community that are really good at raising money. Okay, that's the raising money group. Let's talk about legal counsel. Going into the next few years, we're going to be buying buildings, we're going to be selling property, we're going to be incorporating other organizations. We're going to have to have somebody on the board that's familiar with contracts and legal transactions that can not probably not do the work for free, but we need that expertise on our board. Who are the top 20 corporate attorneys in the area? Who are the top 20 that actually do nonprofit work? Because we're probably not going to get them on the board, but we'll probably get their partners on the board. Right, because they don't want to be on the board because they don't want to be asked to do things for free, but they're they're certainly willing to volunteer their partners to be on the board. Mm. Um, we need somebody who's really good at you know we're gonna we're looking at adding another three locations and another two hundred employees over the next ten years. We need somebody who's really good at administration. Who are the top fifty business owners in our area? Locally owned private companies. They own their own business. They're spending their own money. Put together that list. And and the and you might go on if your if your nonprofit has something to do with the medical community, you know, and, and like you mentioned cancer earlier, you yeah. know. So who are the who are the top uh, top twenty oncologists within thirty miles of here that are under fifty years of age, hmm. right? And so you put that list together, right? And so as you define what you want your board's role to be. You say, listen, uh, here's here's our, our board development priorities. We really need medical representation on our board. We're about cancer research. We're about pediatric this or that. And we need, and here's a list of the, the top 20 people in our area. Does anybody in this room of 10 or 15 people happen to know any of these people? What do you think the odds are going to be? Like, oh, yeah, I know them. Mm-hmm. Well, how well do you know them? I don't know them as well as my sister knows them. Would your sister be willing to approach him and, and make an introduction? And then, and, but then the other side of it is, well, let's, before we make the introduction, let's think about the process that we should have for identifying and recruiting and courting and approaching and eventually pitching potential board members. So then we get back to that whole idea of execution of like, we may tap the board for saying um, in the planning phase, 
we want you to help us build the process for approaching these people. And then the execution phase, we want you to help. We're going to give you a list. We want you to identify the people on the list that you might have connections to. And then we want you to run them through the process. And so when we meet next month, you know, we're going to be saying, at what stage of the process is Dr. Williams at? Because you said that you were going to make the introduction to your sister, and that's step one, step two, and step three. So uh, you know, board development has to be about a lot more than just who do we want on our board because you have to do those fundamental steps of, well, what's the board's role going to be now and in three, four, five years? And given that, who do we need? And, th- and then we're not going to just punt to our board and say, who do you know? We're going to do the homework of this as a staff going, who do we want to work with? Like, Dr. Williams is on this. Dr. Williams is a jackass. Like, he, my sister went to him, and he's total jerk. Take him off the list because we don't want to work with him. Right. I mean, you'd much rather do that then have your board chair bring Dr. Williams in and be like, this is our guy. And then you're forced to work with the jackass for the next four years until his board term expires. So like the staff has to play a huge role in identifying like who are the board members that we want to be working alongside over the next few years because the board members, they're not going to have to do that. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful in, in terms of even just getting everybody's insight. If, if you have a, a team of people who have committed to the vision of the organization, and, and they're using each other as a resource and, and collectively being a resource for the, the success of the organization. You really do want people to know who they're going to be working with and, and really give time and thought to developing a community of people in a way that it's, that's going to have some synergy and work well together. Yeah, and it also goes a long ways toward, you know, what, imagine the, the, the board member who comes on and one day gets the guts to say, hey, why don't you guys approach me? <laughs> and you're going, well, we all sat around a room like, who do we want on the board? And you were honestly the only name we could think of. <laughs> right? Versus a situation where you're like, how did you guys, how did, how did you come to approach me? Well, actually, the folks back at the office, we had 10 people back at the office working for three or four weeks to put together this list of the top 20 people. And you made that list. And then we brought that to our board and we said, does anybody know any of these people? And it just so happens that this person had a connection and was very impressed by you. And we talked about you as a candidate and decided that uh, we wanted to approach you. And we just we did it in a very deliberate way because it's important to us. You think that board member is not going to take their role a little bit more seriously, feel like they've got a little bit more responsibility for execution and be willing to be held a little bit more accountable. So it's like... The, the, the degree to which you're willing to put in the work on the front end of some of this stuff, whether it's developing the plan, um, deciding on the strategy, or doing the kind of the board development piece, says a lot about how vested your board's going to be when it comes their turn to play a part in it. And you know, I, I, I sympathize with CEOs who may be listening to this going, man, it sounds like a lot of work. And I'm already understaffed under-budgeted, under-resourced, short on time, stretched in a million different directions. And I get it, and there's no easy answer to that other than um, you know, take a step back and look at the board you've got now and say, is this really the board that I need to pursue my vision? And don't feel bad about saying no, it's probably not. Hmm. Uh, because if unless the board has a completely different vision than you do, they're probably going to be okay with you pursuing another direction. 
Right? They're not losing out on anything. They're, what they're losing out on right now is their time and energy that they're contributing to you that's not really doing you any good, and they kind of know it. Like the, the dirty little secret is that if you don't feel like you're effectively using your board, your board doesn't feel like it's being effectively used. And so you're better off kind of calling out the 800-pound gorilla in the room and just being honest with your board members, maybe on one-on-one and saying, look, I don't think I've done a great job of using you at your highest and best use for this organization. And I know your heart's in the right place. And I know that you would be doing a phenomenal job if I was doing a better job of, of asking you to do things that really mattered. And that's on me. And so do you have any ideas? Maybe this is where you get transparent and say, do you have any ideas for me? Or I, I would probably just say, how well do you feel like your time's being used? Because I don't want to be the person to waste your time, and I want to give you permission to go do something that's more important if you think you've got other places you can be used. I honestly am struggling to figure that out with you right now. Hmm. And that, that's a, you know, those are not easy conversations no. to have. But you get to a point where you're like, we're all grown adults, yeah. right? <laughs> And the passive-aggressive kind of behavior will eventually crop in when people don't feel like, you know, you're being honest with them or they feel like you're wasting their time. And that's the situation you want to avoid, you know, at all costs. You don't want to get to that point. Hi, this is Joey Brannon. I want to take a quick time out just to tell you a little bit more about Axiom and the work that we do. We work with closely held businesses on strategic growth. What that means is that we come alongside the business owners, we help them get clear about where their business is going, and then we engage their leadership team to build plans for growth and then execute those plans. If you're a business owner and you're trying to grow or you're looking for future growth, or maybe you're just trying to manage the current growth that you have and you're looking for some help, you want somebody to come alongside you, to give you the tools, to show you what accountability looks like, to build the skill set of your team so that you can step away from the business while it continues to grow, give us a call. You can find more information at axiomstrategic.com. So just being able to have an honest, transparent conversation goes a long ways. And we go back to fundamentals of culture and what's the culture you're trying to build. And we talk about vision and values, but we may not have talked about why yet. And why is one of those questions that, if you have it answered, is incredibly valuable in these very difficult conversations. So I say, you know, your, your, our goal is, you know, our vision is to contribute $100 million to cancer research, pediatric cancer research. If that's, the, that's the reason the organization was founded. Maybe it was founded 20 years ago uh, by a couple who was impacted by that and had some money or had some influence to start a foundation. And now you've been tapped as the executive director and you're five or six or 10 years into your stint. And you're going, why do I do this? You know why you do it or you wouldn't have taken the job. Like you probably didn't take it for the money. So there was something that drew you to that. Maybe it's a personal experience where cancer touched your life. Maybe it's just an incredible amount of empathy for kids you've seen go through this or you don't know the kids personally or hadn't known them before you got involved, but it's just something that you believe is worth every ounce of your best effort. Getting very clear about why that's important to you is the basis for forming a lot of the relationships you're going to have in the organization. It's the basis for recruiting other people who are like-minded and getting them on the team. It's the basis for connecting with volunteers and enlisting them, and it's the basis for recruiting board members, right? And so it happens at the front end of these engagements, 
But the great thing about that why question is that when you talk about the why, what you're really talking about is what's inside you, what you're most most passionate about, what you care about the most. And there's an, there's an inevitable layer of vulnerability that has to be pierced through for you to have a really good conversation about why you're doing something. So when you're having to have a difficult conversation, man, it is such a great place to start from. Because what you're doing is getting to the foundation of a relationship that probably started with the why, and you're taking it back there. And you're saying to a board member that maybe you feel like uh, maybe you feel like is on the outside looking in. Maybe you feel like they're just not as engaged. Maybe you feel like they're not they're not um, they're not executing. You know, living up to the things that they said they would do. And you say, can we just have a, a really honest conversation? Because I think your heart and mine are in the right are in the same place. We both got involved in this for the same reason, and it's because we care about this thing deeply. And I don't want us to get to a position where you feel like you care more, or I feel like I care more because we're observing what's happening on the outside. Because I know that's not the case. I know we both care about it at the same the same level. But when we are working on it together. I'm having a hard time seeing how we're using you to your highest and best ability in this cause that we both care about so much. And that's my fault. I have not done a good job of using the time and talents that you're offering to the organization to really get us down the road where we want to go. And I know it's important to you and I know it's important to me. And I don't want to hold you back from pursuing that. So help me understand what I can do better to use that. And what they're going to say nine times out of ten is, it's not you that's letting me down, it's me that's letting you down. And I do care about this stuff, but I've been distracted or I haven't been clear about my, what my role is. I don't know what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to do these things, but I've never done them before. It's my first time on a board and I'm uncertain. And you can get to the point where maybe you can rescue a relationship that hasn't gone very well just because of performance. But it all starts with, why are you doing what you're doing? So if you haven't examined that, I mean, that's a huge tool in your toolbox to understand what gets you out of bed in the morning, but it's also a huge tool to build relationships in every sphere around you. And what's interesting, we talked earlier about what how good CEOs are and nonprofits of building these, you know, having this relational capital with all these different groups. Why is that the case? Well, it's because nonprofit CEOs are probably more explicit about why they do what they do than any you know, run-of-the-mill for-profit business owner that we run into. Mm. Like the, the general assumption of for-profit business owners is they're doing it for the money. You and I know that that's not the case. Right. But there was a day when they were doing it for a different reason, but then they get caught in the weeds of having to make payroll and put, keep up with customers and all that stuff. And sometimes they can get really disconnected from their mission. That rarely happens in the for-profit world because every day they're surrounded by people who are showing up to volunteer, and the only reason they're showing up is because they're explicitly about the mission. So every day it's in their face. Every day the same why, the same reason they joined up is being lived out in front of them, and they have these incredibly rich opportunities every day to have these why conversations. It allows them to move through all these different groups and build these relationships and develop this facility of, of being able to manage an incredibly diverse range of people that we, we look at our for-profit business owners, they're not very good at that. And maybe if the for-profit business owners were better 
at talking about their why, we would see the same kind of success of them being able to move through these diverse groups um, because they're talking about their why more often. So what do you do if you're a CEO of a nonprofit? And we're talking, you know, still on the same strain of board development. And there's a proactive approach to it. But I'm sure many CEOs of, of nonprofits have probably run into this, where you have members of the community who are overzealous and they want to be more board members. What are some of the ways that, as a CEO, you can approach that, you know, navigate that that relationship, um, but also keep keep in mind the the strategy and, and you know holding to heart the purpose of your board and just how do you navigate that? That's a really good question. Um, what you're describing uh, is a situation nonprofit boards deal with. From the outside, like pretty much every board I've ever been on, I've gotten letters from the overzealous community member telling me what I should be doing as a board member. And you got a couple of choices. You can ignore it, which sometimes I have done. You can engage it, which can be very risky. Um, or you can recruit it, which r- requires a lot more creativity and, and effort and, and energy. Um so what I mean by recruit it is what we look for in board members um, and in most cases is pretty even keel, lots of discernment, lots of experience, lots of wisdom, uh, just an ability to uh, not get shooken up by different things that might happen, right? And what you find in kind of the overzealous community member is drama in spades, like their whole life is shook up. They make a living at it. You know, the, the, they operate. Their mo is shaking things up and getting excited and passionate about things. And that's what makes them great advocates for their cause. It what, it's what makes them great fundraisers or volunteers for your organization. It, it's that um, it's that level of energy and enthusiasm and passion that every nonprofit wants on their side but maybe not necessarily in their boardroom because it can be rash and divisive and it can, it can lead to some poor decision-making and it can kind of skip over process. And uh, so I, when you say recruit, I think the strategy that I would use as a board member or as a CEO, probably as a CEO, is I would recruit a board member to, to engage that person with an ear toward recruiting them to maybe use that passion in a way that they haven't been able to because they haven't been given the platform or the mandate by the organization yet. And it's probably short of board membership, but when you've got somebody who's like, what you're going to run into most often is somebody who's hypercritical of the organization. And you have to stop and ask yourself, are these people being hypercritical because they really have nothing else to do? Like, were they just really sitting there twiddling their thumbs and going, man, I'm really bored today. I know. I'll look up a board member's home you know, address and their name, and I'm going to write them a four-page letter outlining in detail all the things I've observed over the last you know, six months or six years and why this organization isn't working, right? Sounds a little close to home. <laughs> so, <laughs> so most people aren't that desperate for things to do. So the question is, why? Why did they take the time to single you out? Why did they take the time to do all those things? And yeah, there are some unhinged people who they really genuinely didn't have anything to do. And like, you were the next one on the list, so it was your lucky day. I mean, I, 
I seriously think we're talking about 0.5% of the cases right. out there. So why do they do what they do? Well, they do it because they care. The organization's important to them. Uh, they do it a lot of times because there's been a change, and they don't handle change well. Maybe you did go, maybe your CEO, you're on the board, and maybe you get one of these letters, and maybe it's because your CEO did change directions. Maybe they did stop building houses and start buying cars, you know, to, to give to people without cars instead of people without houses. And this person was all about building houses. I mean, they, they can point back to the 50 houses they helped put shingles on, you know, or the 14 times they laid carpet, you know, or whatever it was back in the day. And they wanted you to go back to that. And they, they've outlined for you all the ways you are more impactful in the community when you're doing that, right? And so what it, what do you do as a CEO? Well, you get a board member maybe who was on the board back in that day. Maybe maybe they ran into this person on a project or two, or maybe they've heard their name once before. And you say, hey, would you would you mind engaging with this person? So-and-so got the letter, but you're really in a better position to recruit this person and bring them along to our cause. And you have a much better success, much better chance of success at getting people aligned and why you're doing what you're doing now versus why you were doing what you were doing back then and, and maybe why this is better. Maybe why maybe it's okay to, to disagree. And maybe you should be more I've got a connection over at Habitat and they're looking for project managers. And if building houses is really your thing, and I would love to introduce you to this person and give you my full endorsement. So you're you're gonna have uh I, I think when you get those overzealous people, um I'm a little leery of anybody who's lobbying to be on a board um, because they're usually either lobbying because they want the resume building. Um, they're lobbying because they, they want a, a platform to voice you know, all these feelings of you know, differences of opinion about why things should be done. Um, occasionally, they're, they are lobbying because there's a situation I think that you have to accept from that is like here where we live, there's a lot of people moving into the area and maybe they have they've, they spent the last 20 years raising money for cancer research organizations in their hometown. They moved down here. They're still passionate about it. They want to get involved. They're like, listen, I've been a board member. I've raised a lot of money. Could you guys use anybody? Um, and I think if that's the question, could you guys use anybody? I think you got a tremendous opportunity. But if the statement is you have to you have to let me be on your board, I should be the chair of your board. I think you know, eh, maybe <laughs> we can do without your fundraising because that that smart, hungry, humble thing that we that uh, Patrick Lencioni wrote the book, The Ideal Team Player, which is a really good book, and that smart, hungry, hungry, smart, hungry, humble mantra um, it is just it just makes a lot of sense. Like, do you want to work with somebody who's smart? And who's hungry, but isn't humble? Who hmm. says I should be your board chair? I should be in. The, I should be in your seat. You need to step down. You need to point me at the next meeting. You're like, I don't think my other board members are going to enjoy that very much. <laughs> so, yeah, I I hear what you're saying, and I think that there are great opportunities, but probably not to get those people on the board, and definitely not to ignore them because you think they're crackpots. Because they can make your life miserable. They can make your board members' lives miserable if you're the CEO. Uh, and you also run the risk if you're the CEO that they may bend your board member's ear away from the vision 
because you may have a board member who's maybe sensitive. Maybe they know this person. Maybe, maybe you're refusing to engage, so they feel like they need to be given, you know, a fair hearing. Um, and you can wind up with some dissension on your own board because you've refused to engage them. You've refused to recruit them, and that, and I don't think that's a wise place to be. Yeah, I think it's in all it, it's such a vital role that the CEO plays really in any organization, mm-hmm. but in nonprofits, you know, it can be difficult and just using wisdom to discern why exactly is this person approaching me and why do they want to be on the board? And I think that what you said about Patrick Lencioni is, you know, kind of three criteria is hungry, humble, smart, such a, such a good insight into how a CEO should navigate uh, anybody who may or may not, or may want to be on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm just starting out. I'm, I was, I, I have a heart for organizational development, and I'm been given this really great opportunity to to run a nonprofit organization. It's my first real major leadership executive role. What do I do with my board who who has been here for a long time? Mm-hmm. Talk about pl- coming into the middle of a strategic plan. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think like the transition of a CEO is a really uh, it's a key time in any organization's development. And it's pragmatically speaking, that's because the CEO, think of about the, an organization that's starting for the first time. Who is going to be on the board? It's going to be the people that the CEO approaches and asks to be on the board, right? The CEO is not going to post an ad in the newspaper and take applications or put up a website and ask people to submit applications. It doesn't work that way. It's like, hey, I have a passion for this project. Uh, you know, we want to, we want to, to, uh, like the cancer research one, you know, we've kind of overplayed in this one, but like, that's, I want to, I want to address this in a way that hasn't been addressed before. I haven't seen any other nonprofit address it and I want to be a part of the solution. So I'm going to set this up. Then you're going to think of your neighbor, your doctor, your, you know, your attorney, your CPA, you're going to go out and you're going to ask these people to join your board and they believe in you. So they're on board, right? But what happens 10, 12, 15 years down the road? And you bring in your successor, right? And now these board members who believed in you, like they're not dealing with you anymore. So I think you should expect, as a new CEO, you should expect a time of transition, right? And you have to go into this looking like this is the same way we look at business ownership. This is a long game. Like you, you shouldn't be, man, if you got to deal with a board, you ought to be looking at job applications hypercritically because you don't have the same luxury as somebody going into a nonprofit saying, I'm going to interview with the the owner. I'm going to interview with the general manager. I'm going to interview with the the people who are going to be my colleagues. And based on, you know, those things and their track record and the, the company that I do some reason, I'm going to accept this job. Because if it doesn't work out, and six to nine months later you find out you're you're given a bill of goods that would, you go find another job, right? Um, you're going to know very very quickly when you sign up to become the CEO of a nonprofit where there's an existing CEO or you had a predecessor. You have to anticipate that it could be two or three years before you have a board that you can use as a resource because the existing board doesn't know you. They may not be willing to be used as a resource by you. They may not have been used as a resource at all. They might have just been there for that credibility piece, and they just show up and rubber stamp the consent agenda, and they're not really asked to do much. So it's going to take some time for you to fill the board with the people that are going to be your people now. And I I think that that is sometimes looked at negatively, like, oh, well, we want 
healthy discussion and de- yeah, you do want healthy discussion and debate, but you don't want contention. You want people who catch on to your vision. Like we would never tell a business owner, go out and hire people who are going to fight you at every turn because (laughs) good discussion and debate is going to make for a healthy organization. No, go out and hire like-minded people. Describe your vision. Describe your why. Describe your values to them. And if they're on board with those things and they've got a skill set that you need, hire them because you're all going to be on the same page. So you need that same thing. And as a new CEO, I don't think it's unreasonable to to expect that you're going to have a little bit different vision. You're going to have a little bit different why. And you're going to need board members who resonate with that. So understand it could take like two or three years. Mm. But going back to that Lencioni paradigm of smart, hungry, humble, you got hired because you were smart. You know, you got hired because you're somewhat hungry. You're willing to make a change in your in your you know career, your job, your you know whatever. Maybe pick up your family, and move to a different area of the country. What they haven't had an opportunity to observe yet is whether you're humble or not. So I think it's really important that you take that posture of humility to your board members, and you're very transparent. Again, go to the why. Like, do you really think that they could they could poke holes in why you believe? this is a great organization for you to be a part of, why this resonated with you, why you took the job. Like, don't take the job unless you can answer why. But as soon as you can't answer why, start building relationships by talking about that with your board members. Hmm. And then once you've once you've accomplished that, you're going to know, like, wh- which conversations went great and which ones were a challenge. Like, they were, they were uh, hospitable and accommodating to my why, but we really didn't click. We didn't really resonate. Their why is a little bit different, and I respect and will accommodate theirs. But ultimately, I'm probably going to have to have somebody else in that seat to really turbocharge this board as a resource to get us to our vision, to my vision of where we want to go. So, you know, if you're, if you're taking over a seat, um, you know, you can't expect to just jump in and start using the board as a resource. But you may be a CEO that's in a situation where you haven't been using the board as a resource. Maybe you have been there five or 10 or 15 years and you're going, oh, crap. You know, I didn't do a very good job of laying out the vision. I didn't do a very good job of, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but like putting the board in its place in terms of giving the board a clear and specific mandate about how they can be best uh best used in pursuing the vision organization. You're like, I got to, I got to clean up my act. It's the same thing. Start the conversation with the why, why is this important to you? Why is it important to them? You may find that it's really not important to them. Once you're, once you're transparent enough to be vulnerable and say, look, I just got to be honest. This is what's really important to me. They may recognize that transparency and honesty and vulnerability and have the courage to go, man, I so admire that. And I just don't have that. I wish I did, but I, I think I think you need some board members. I could probably help you get some board members that are better suited to this than I am. And that may sound Pollyannish and and you know overly simplified, but if you don't start there, that's where you got to start to build the relationships with the board to either recruit them onto your side and and make them your people, or have a, a very uh, clear conversation about the fact that you need really you need people who see the world the way you do uh, for the organization to go and there's no harm no foul in them deciding to you know spend their you know second Tuesday of the month somewhere else besides your board meeting because you don't want to waste their time good stuff well I think we should end we've been holding our listeners here for a long time <laughs> almost an hour and a half thank you for listening to the Axiom podcast Joey any any words we'll see you next week all right